Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, are we allowed to question capitalism? Why not? Yeah, why Professor not? Professor Richard Wolff. <laughs> Here, Professor Richard Wolff, who says there is a better way. In a world where 62 individuals own as much as half the world's population, where 1% of people own more than the other 99% combined, where for decades DuPont knowingly poisoned us by using a toxic cancer-causing chemical, where since the 1990s big oil has been denying climate change while secretly preparing for it, where workers are told that a $15 an hour minimum wage is too much and where real wages are going down, in this world, don't you think it's time to ask if capitalism is working for us? If you were alive after World War II, you saw people being fired, even imprisoned, for questioning capitalism. But why should that stop us? Dr. Richard Wolff, a former economics professor at the University of Massachusetts, has long had the guts to question the system. He says there is a better way, a form of socialism. What is it? Could it work? How does it relate to the inner revolution? So stay tuned. Big business and billionaires may control the government and the economy, but they can't control us. And now, here's Beth. Hi, everybody. Well, I'm so happy to be here today, and I am so looking forward to talking with Richard Wolf. Uh, a guy after my own heart, I must say. <laughs> so, uh, very rare that you meet somebody who really has been thinking about these kind of issues. And uh, um, I guess I should say that I, I became a socialist when I was nine years old uh, by reading Upton Sinclair's book about the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> uh, going to, uh, you know, to Harlem and seeing my first black ghetto, uh, finding that the Rosenbergs were executed. Uh, and there was just a lot, and the Pledge of Allegiance was distorted by throwing under God in, and I refused to do it because it, it was against the separation of church and state, and they uh, threatened me with expulsion from elementary school. So <laughs> I'm just telling Richard this because he doesn't know anything about me. So I'm really, <laughs> you know, I was there, and I saw all of this stuff, and, you know, I really get it, you know, that people are, you know, completely brainwashed against even questioning capitalism and are looking at it. And there's a lot of distorted views about what socialism is, what communism is. So I am thrilled that Richard is on the show today. And I can't wait for us to get into our conversation. But I have to wait because, as you know, our uh, beloved listeners, we always start with the news of the inner revolution. And uh, James has a couple of stories for us. And I'm going to chime in a comment or two. And Richard, you know, if you want to go, oh, my God, or whatever, you can uh, share something, too. Uh, <laughs> and then, right. when we're, then when we're done with the news, then we'll get right into our interview. So take it away, James. There's so much wild news to choose from. Sometimes it's hard just to pick a few. But here are some of the, news, the noteworthy stories of the week. This first one is from our producer, Christine. And it continues our focus on positive steps the Muslim community is taking to show its support for the rest of us. This one is from news.mike, January the 18th, 2016. Muslim group donates 30,000 bottles of water to Flint, Michigan. A Muslim group called Who is Usain is donating 30,000 bottles of fresh water to help assist beleaguered residents of Flint, Michigan. The Flint water crisis garnered worldwide attention about the toxicity of the Michigan City's water supply that prompted Governor Rick Snyder to declare a state of emergency. 
The city began piping contaminated water to its residents after, in an attempt to save money, it rerouted the tap from Detroit's municipal supply to the waters of the Flint River. The river's water then picked up the lead and iron toxins from the city's corrosive plumbing system, and of course this went into people's drinking water. According to the group's website, Who is a Sane is an aid organization that organizes charitable activities around the world, and the Flint Water Drive was taken up by a chapter in Dearborn, Michigan, roughly an hour from Flint, which has the highest Arab population in the United States at nearly 30%, according to the 2000 census. We saw what needed to be done, and we decided to do it, Dr. Aziza Askari of the Michigan chapter told the Washington Times. We reached out to schools, neighbors, friends, mosques, anyone and everyone to help us by donating a case of water or money towards a case. Beth? Well, you know, we are here proponents of the inner revolution. There's plenty that we need to clean up on the outside, that's obvious, but we also need to change ourselves from the inside, become more devoted to oneness, accountability, and mutual support, all of which we're obviously missing uh, around this whole Flint crisis. I mean, not only the, you know, the, the giving them water without really making sure that that water was good and it was money-saving so that the, you know, the cost-cutting Republican governor could look good and all of the people who are involved in the government. But also, uh, you know, the, the complete lack of accountability that has taken so long. And what, but what we love about this story is it's the other side of the, instead of the lack of the inner revolution, we see people who are taking accountability and are feeling oneness. Like here is this Muslim community who is feeling their oneness for these people in Flint, Michigan, most of whom are people of color, black. And, uh, you know, taking some accountability and trying to help. And I like this story very much because we are always seeing, you know, Muslims in a negative light. And uh, I also think it's really important for Muslims to be into the oneness with everybody else. Um, You know, that it's really important for the Muslim community to show the rest of us that they care about us rather than we should just care about them. Because that's what the whole thing is about, you know, caring about each other. So, anyway, that's my comment. Yes. With record-breaking temperatures year after year, with freak storms, wild blizzards in the east, and droughts and flooding in the west, do you think United States politicians will stop denying climate change? Nah. I guess not. But here's a couple of stories about how the battle continues. Not the battle against climate change, the battle to get governments and business to fight it. First, from climatechangenews.com, January the 15th. Big oil lines up to battle kids in climate court case. American fossil fuel lobby takes government's side against 21 young plaintiffs suing for stronger action on global warming. How shocking. Really. (laughs) Three U.S. trade associations representing the world's energy giants have been named defendants in a court case brought by young Americans in a move they say shows that the stakes are high. They joined the U.S. government in the case on Wednesday after a magistrate in the Oregon District Court agreed uh, and uh, issued an adverse ruling that would be a threat to their business. In August, 21 young plaintiffs in ages ranging from 8 to 21 charged the federal government with violating their constitutional right to life, liberty, and property by failing to prevent dangerous climate change. Renowned scientist James Hansen is backing the case. 
They want the administration to deepen carbon emission cuts in line with what science says needs to be done to avoid catastrophic levels of global warming. One of the youngsters is Shutusek. Shutescott. Ah, Shutescott. Starts with an X, so it's a little hard to pronounce. Shutescott Martinez, the 15-year-old climate activist we interviewed here on the show September the 10th. If you missed that interview, you can still hear it via podcast. He's an amazing kid. Now, who do these lobbying groups represent? One group represents British Petroleum, ExxonMobil, Coke Industries, and Honeywell. A second group represents BHP Billiton, ConocoPhillips, Mirsk Drilling, Shell, and over 600 members. The third represents... And then the third represents 11,000 members, none disclosed on their website. There's a lot of clout lining up against these kids. But here's the good news. As was said by Julia Olson, Executive Director for Our Children's Trust, a counsel in the litigation, the trade groups will have to face science-based evidence in a courtroom, not, quote, in the halls of Congress, where their lobbying dollars hold the most clout, unquote. To continue the quote, This case asked the court to order what the industry fears most, a national plan using the best science to leave a nation of clean air and healthy climate to our kids. What a concept. The Obama administration aims to cut emissions up to 28% within 10 years to 2005 levels. That is insufficient to cap warming to the internationally agreed limit of 2 degrees centigrade this century, according to independent researchers at Climate Action Tracker. And now on to the good news about how people are inspired by one another's actions and victories. This story is from back in September 2015, which was announced on this show, but still probably few of us have known about it. It starts with a landmark ruling calling on the Netherlands government to make deeper emissions cuts. For the first time ever in July 2015, a Dutch district court accepted a human rights argument for demanding a country make deeper greenhouse gas emissions cuts. The state must do more to avert the imminent danger caused by climate change, read the verdict. And so now here are five legal battles to watch. Belgium. The Klimatsak, literally climate case, campaign has signed up to 9,000 citizens as co-plaintiffs in a climate change suit. They're calling for a 40% cut in greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 levels by 2020. The court hearing is expected towards the end of 2016. Two, a Peruvian farmer versus RWE. Saul Luciano Liuya is arguing that German energy firm RWE should pay compensation for its historic activities. The Peruvian farmer lives in the flood path of a glacial lake that is on the verge of bursting its banks as greenhouse gases heat up the climate. He is asking RWE, one of European Union's top historical emitters, to pay a large sum towards work to protect the valley. That sum is just under one-half of 1% of the estimated project cost based on RWE's 0.47% share of global emissions between 1751 and 2010. While the sum is modest, a victory would open the floodgates for thousands if not millions of claims. Three, Washington teens. 
in, in the state of Washington, eight teenagers ages 11 to 15 won a case in August 2015 to force the state to consider science-based emission regulations. It was the first victory for campaign group Our Children's Trust, which is also bringing a similar action in Oregon, as we mentioned, and elsewhere in the U.S. Four, the Philippines petition. Greenpeace, along with local campaign groups, is drumming up a petition to get the Philippines Commission on Human Rights to investigate. The Philippines is hit hard by increasingly intense tropical storms, such as Typhoon Haiyan, for example, and has limited resources to protect its people. Greenpeace will argue the likes of Gazprom, Glencore, Zastra, and ExxonMobil are violating the human rights of Filipinos by profiting from climate-polluting energy. Pacific Islanders, whose leaders last month have declared their intention to challenge these carbon giants in the courts as well. And the fifth case to watch, Australia. Directly inspired by the Netherlands climate suit victory, Environmental Justice Australia is canvassing support for a similar lawsuit. If any of our listeners has updates on any of these activities, please let us know. Beth? Well, it's always exciting to see people standing up and doing something, right? Because part of our oneness, accountability, and mutual support is like you have to have the guts to do something. It's not enough to just sit there in your house and moan. <laughs> Gee, this is so <laughs> terrible. You know, we are the people, and we do have power when we exercise it. And, of course, you know, we have power. We don't have as much power as we'd like. Um, there's so much going on in our world today that is shocking, that is turning things upside down. I mean, we have horrible news, and then we have weird things like Donald Trump becoming the front runner in the Republican <laughs> and, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders coming out of left field, literally. And so there's a, a lot of ferment in the consciousness of people, but... I know that that it is true. You know, what Richard Wolff says is that very few people ever dare to question capitalism, which is the economic system. And one of the reasons that that, that is the case is that uh, people associate democracy with capitalism, and we don't want our democracy taken away. And I can understand why, because as, you know, I may have become a socialist when I was nine, but I was horrified by the Soviet Union and later by, you know, the Chinese. And um, I said, no, 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 this is not what I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for, you know, people to have rights and people to have power. And so many people turned off the, quote, socialist communist model because those were the examples of what we saw, and uh, we were not happy with that. And so it was difficult to think beyond that. It's like, oh, maybe there's another alternative. Well, there's a lot to say about that, and there's a lot of clarification of what Mark said, because he never said the government should own everything, <laughs> did he, Richard? So, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> so welcome so much to Interrevolutionary Radio, and we are so happy to be able to bring some knowledge and perspective to this issue, and, you know, you're the guy. So why don't we start with that? You know, is that what Marx was about? Well, you know, Marx, like every major thinker in the history of our species, has been interpreted in all kinds of different ways. Uh, that's really true of everybody, and so we really shouldn't be surprised if some of the interpretations um, are bizarre, some of them are <laughs> strange to us, some of them are horrible, some of them are beautiful. 
Yeah. And the, the, the difficulty is you have to kind of face that that's the reality. People don't all think alike, and it's probably a good thing. And so they make different kinds of sense of it. Uh, the people in the Soviet Union and in the People's Republic of China, they've interpreted Marx in one way. That doesn't mean it's the only way. It doesn't mean it's the right way. There were always, and this is important for people to know, there were always people who interpreted Marx uh, as well as loads of other thinkers in different ways. Socialism was never one thing. It was always a family of things. Just like today, the words democracy are used by Bernie Sanders, they're used by Mrs. Clinton, they're used by Ted Cruz, they're used by Donald Trump, and clearly they don't mean the same thing to these people. And I won't go into the way uh, Mr. General Pinochet in Chile used the, the word democracy to describe his society. Clearly, these important words have many different meanings. For me, as I suppose it might also have been for you, Beth, but for me, socialism was always a, an idea of a society that was governed first and foremost by what was good for human beings, by what yes. would make a community stronger, what would allow individuals to fig, really figure out in good schools and with a healthy diet what they were, what they loved, what they would like to do, how they could contribute to the communities of which they were a part, and there would be a society that would nurture us, take care of us, give us the chance to become all we're capable of, and thereby make a rich, diverse community. And it always struck me that Marx's basic lesson was that if you want a society and an economy to do that, well, then you have to put the people in charge. You cannot make a tiny group of people the way you began your program today by reporting on that Oxfam research of last week that 62 people own more wealth than 3.5 billion uh, people on yeah. this earth. That's a level of inequality for which there's no excuse, for yeah. which there's no moral justification. And a system, capitalism, that has produced that result which we know it now has, is a system to which socialism is an alternative, and the least we owe ourselves as intelligent people is to have a real, honest, open converse, conversation, excuse me, in our society about capitalism and socialism so we can make a rational choice and not be denied the kinds of society that I suspect most of us want. I so agree with you, and that's the sad part of the story to me. I mean, I I heard Donald Trump say wages are too high, and yet he has working class people supporting him. You know, I want to go to each one of those people and say, are you going to take a wage cut? Do you, are you the one who wants to take that wage cut? Uh, Donald, are you taking a wage cut? <laughs> and, uh, you know, people have been turned against their own interests, and I... I think I saw it happen in my lifetime because I was around, you know, in 1954. I was watching McCarthy on television. I saw people getting arrested. I saw the absolute silencing of anybody who had a different opinion and the demonizing and the threat to those people. And I also saw the co-option of people. It's like, oh, we'll give you more money 
and you'll give up power. It's like this is I saw this in the union movement because I was a, a, a steward in the in one of the unions, you know, that the, the unions were buying into the whole capitalist system and saying, okay, we'll take better this or that or the other thing, but we're never going to ask for power. And that's kind of what I have seen. So plus the demonizing and the, you know, the bad examples of the Soviet Union. And, and there are many good things. I mean, you've got, you have to look at the Chinese and you said, oh my God, they finally ended the wrapping of women's feet. You know what I mean? The Chinese communists did do a lot to advance Chinese society, but people don't understand that because they're not looking at China before the revolution of China after. They just look at, you know, the cultural revolution and think, ick, ack, you know, we don't want this. And, you know, they don't look at the history where the Soviet Union was a peasant society and not an advanced capitalist society that was supposed to transform into a socialist society. So there's very little education, historical perspective to really understand why these societies became the way they were. But I just people just seeing it, plus being scared, you know, being brainwashed uh, and being bought off. These are some of the factors that I noticed in my lifetime that would make people stop thinking. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. It's been my experience, uh, you know, being born and raised here in the United States. I was born in a city in Ohio called Youngstown. And it is yeah. like a poster child, if I could say so, of, uh, of capitalism's dark side. When yeah, I was born, it, when I was born, it was a thriving town. It had a huge steel industry, many factories, people with really pretty good jobs, with pretty good incomes. You could sustain a family. You could live a decent life. Uh, they weren't real good on the environmental dimension because <laughs> people didn't understand it really very well then. Yeah. Uh, but now it's a ghost city. It, it is. Its factories stand there like mute uh, documents of a failed system. It's not just that the jobs changed. Nothing was done in our society to, to deal and help with those people, uh, right. to get them other jobs, to make use of all of the money invested in that uh, equipment, in those buildings, in that whole uh, infrastructure. And if you know something about America, you know that Detroit is like Youngstown, only larger. Uh, Cleveland, I mean, I could go through the list of, of cities that have been grossly abused, the people traumatized by losing their jobs, losing their homes, children born into families going through this experience who then suffer all of the psychological inner, as you put it, as well as outer costs of this system. Yeah. It really should have been a long time ago that we ask the question, gee, can't we do better? Let me put it another way. You know, we as Americans are often proud, as I think we're entitled to be, that we question other systems. We question our school system. Uh, we've just gone through a process of questioning the very institution of marriage and whether it ought to be extended to uh, people that are different from the normal uh, average person, etc. And we've been courageous and we've made changes. How different then is it when we come to our economic system? where we're all supposed to be cheerleaders for the status quo, 
to act as if what we have is the best that the human being can achieve, that nothing is worth questioning, criticizing, that the very question, can we do better, which we apply to every other institution in our society, is somehow taboo when it comes to our economic system, capitalism. Frankly, I think there's no justification for it. I think it is a kind of backwardness we need desperately to outgrow. But I can see now that the, the way that this is happening, and that's where Bernie Sanders is so important, a phenomena in our culture, it's that capitalism can't deliver anymore to the majority of people. It is making a very small number of people very wealthy. They like it. They stay on top of it. They keep it. But for the mass of people, it just is becoming intolerable. And at the end, the irony is that the biggest recruiter for an interest in socialism these days is capitalism itself. Yes, I love that idea. But you know what saddens me, Richard, is how many people are fighting against that questioning of capitalism. It's like they are struggling, they feel powerless, they are angry, and then they're supporting these people who supposedly are outside the establishment. You know, it's like, oh, Trump and Cruz are uh, not, you know, they're not establishment candidates. But that's baloney because they totally... You know, I must must say that it it is astonishing... But I, I feel a certain compassion. I understand what you're yes. saying. But here's, here's a, 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 another way to look at it. It is very hard if you've grown up believing in the so-called American dream. Do you hoping, mean Santa Claus? <laughs> hoping and Santa struggling Claus? and studying hard to yeah. achieve that dream for yourself, for your loved ones, your children. To believe that it is being ripped off, that you are being played with, that you are being um, fooled in some sense, uh, drawn in to support the very people that laughingly mock any chance you might have of getting those things. That's very hard to get a person to to face up to that. You can understand that they really want to believe the hocus-pocus. They want to believe the patriotic language that comes out of these leaders' mouths, to believe that they will somehow bring back the real or imagined good old days. And so I'm I'm frustrated like you are. I'm impatient. But I have the feeling that, on the one hand, it's taking long for those people to see. But my guess is that when they do... They are going to be mighty angry <clears throat> about having been toyed with, having been misled, having been uh, kind of purposefully led down the path, if you know what I mean. They I will do. be quite a, a, a force for change when it finally gets through to them that what they hoped for was being used to prevent them from changing a system that isn't going to give it to them anymore. Yes, I, I think that's a very good point. And I do feel compassion. And I have tried, you know, we have a Facebook page, Beth Green and the Inner Revolution. And until recently, I answered every comment myself, but now our director of outreach, Helen Hillocks, is doing it. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I've talked to people who attack me constantly, <laughs> not on the question of socialism, on anything, climate change, uh, uh, you know, global warming, or whatever it is. You know, we have, uh, we cover the, the, you know, the gamut. And, um, you know, and I have seen exactly what you're talking about, Richard. It's like you can't even talk to some of the people. They will not hear. It's like putting their fingers in their ears and going, la, 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 la. Exactly. Yeah, they don't want to hear it because it is very painful. It It is. It is very, you know, it it disabuses you of things that you held on to that were meaningful to you, that were genuine things you thought you could count on. There's a lot of feeling in America uh, of being... um, Betrayed, if if I can mm-hmm. use that word, yeah. and I think that's a peculiar, but then again, not so peculiar way in which some of the supporters of Mr. Trump on the right, like those of of Mr. Sanders on the left, share something. They share a sense of outrage and anger and upset and regret and this sense of betrayal that they are on the wrong end of a process and that no one cares and that no one is going to fix it and that their children, instead of having a better life than they had, which is what they had expected and taught their children to believe in, the opposite is going to happen. And I see it all around me. Yeah. I'm a professor. So I have students in my office who cry. Literally, the tears come down as they explain to me that they have no idea how in the world they're going to pay off the debts they've had to accumulate to get a a bachelor's degree from college, which they know is no longer a ticket to a good job. It's really very hard for people. I know, I know. And I agree with you. And I keep thinking that at some moment someone is going to say something that's going to turn 95% of the Trump supporters around around when they like wake up but there's a couple of things that I that I want to say that mm, I don't think that we actually disagree on these things but there are you know the other side of some of the things that you're saying is for instance steel mills Youngstown you know I lived in Cleveland and I worked with a group of people and one of them worked in a steel mill and I worked in a plastics factory and so on and uh, we were part of the new left that was back in the 70s so and um what I saw was that those jobs weren't that good. And uh, it's like crying for the old days. What are the good old days? You know, for women, the good old days of the 50s was their husbands told them what to think and there were no women anywhere in any kind of positions of power. The only example you had was like Eleanor Roosevelt, right, to look to when I was growing up, right? And so it wasn't a good old days for women. It wasn't the good old days for blacks. And it wasn't the good old days for workers either. I know, and I'm sure you saw it because if you, you know, lived and you knew uh, steel workers and so on, we saw that the companies would be getting a phone call right before the occupational self and uh, safety and health administration was going to come over and and see how they were doing with their safety. And they would get a call and they'd run and they'd scramble around and they'd put all the safety measures on all the machines. The guys came down and as soon as they were gone, they took them off. I mean, (laughs) I, I saw this with my own eyes, you know, what was going on. And I mean, the coal mine jobs, they're terrible. The, the black lung disease. So 
There is a certain, I totally understand what you're saying. I'm not arguing with you. But I'm saying that there is a nostalgia for something that never existed. Absolutely. Whenever you hear people wax poetic about the good old days, it's always (laughs) a mixture of something that's true and then a great deal of fantasy and made-up nostalgia. And it's usually a sign that what's really bothering these people is not so much going back to the good old days, but that the, the days right now are terrifying, are frightening, it's, oh, yes. are, are something and, that are so scary that yeah. one of the ways you express your upset about it is a, with a, a heavy dash of fantasy about, uh, about the good old days. You know, I, 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 let me give you an example. In my classes, sometimes when students talk about, uh, well, it isn't so bad, you know, it's really it's pretty good, I say to them, are you aware of what working people get in a capitalist country like France? And they look at me and they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I say, well, let me explain to you what exists. And I I give them two or three examples. The first one I always pick is the law in France, which, by the way, is the same in many, many other European countries. The law in France says that the minute you start a regular job, when you finished high school or college or whatever your education level is, it is the law in France that your employer must give you five weeks of paid vacation. When I say that, my aud- the, dro- the jaws of my audience in unison yeah. drop. Right. They look at me, <laughs> and I can see that half of them literally think I've, I've, I've become some sort of wild liar. I'm making things up. And the other people look shocked and astonished. And, and I, I realize that, you know, the people in America, this is not a secret. There's a thousand ways you could find out about this law in France, which, by the way, has been the law for many decades. It's nothing new. It's nothing uh, in any way surprising. But, you know, it's the complicity of Americans who have wanted so badly to hold on to the notion that what we have is the best economic system and what we have. This has always been the effort of the conservative uh, forces in a society who want the mass of people to believe that there's no point in being a critic of society. There is nothing better. There is no alternative. There's a hundred ways of doing this. And the irony is, because it's scary to think about change into the unknown, into something new, there's an instinct on a part of a lot of people to try to hold on. It's the old joke yeah. about the, de- the devil you know is less scary than the unknown. Oh, that is so, so true. And by the way, I'd like to say that we do have a precedent for people waking up, which also happened in our lifetime, Richard, was when we first started, to, I mean, even though people have kind of gone to sleep again, Oh, when people were first opposing the war in Vietnam, nobody believed that the American government could ever do anything so terrible as being imperialistic. (laughs) And, you know, 
Fast forward a couple of years, and there's hundreds of thousands, millions of people who are fighting a war in, in the streets. I mean, we went back to sleep again. But, uh, you know, the reality, I, in fact, I did a video about American history to saying, you know, wake up and calm, America, wake up and calm down. The world is changing about how we have been, you know, imperialistic from the beginning. And maybe people don't like us for that reason. So, uh, you know, it's like wake up to our own history and the reality, and this is what you're talking about. Now, I can't believe that we're already, you know, getting towards the end. So I want to start talking about socialism as an alternative because you have, like, this democratic socialism, which means more government, and then you have this other kind of socialism that you're talking about. You know, we used to call that state capitalism. Right. state became the capitalist. Yes. For me, for me, and I'm not alone in this, I can assure you, but for me, the dream of socialism is indeed very closely allied to the dream of democracy, but in a way that most people have not thought about, even though I think once I explain it, it, it's sort of one of those things where you pat yourself in the forehead and say, yes, of course, as if you had always understood it. Let let me be real simple about it. Yes. I believe that if you're a committed Democrat with a small d, that if you believe that the people who are affected by a decision ought to be able to participate in it, that's why we vote in our communities, because the leaders make decisions that impact us, and therefore we must have a role in choosing them and shaping the things that impact us. If that's a a serious commitment, Well, then it ought to apply, first and foremost, to that place where most adults in your society, in our society, spend most of their time. And that institution, that place, is your job, is your workplace, is the place you go five out of seven days of the week, most of the weeks of the year, nine to five. Most of your life is spent at work, on the way to work, on the way home from work, it's centered on your work. And yet, our workplaces in a capitalist system are not only not democratic, they are the opposite of democratic. When you go to work, you cross the threshold of your factory, your office, your store, wherever you work, and you enter a place where a tiny group of people, the owner or perhaps the board of directors of a corporation, typically 15 to 20 people, they make all the decisions. They decide what will be produced. They decide how it will be produced. They decide where it will be produced. And most of all important, they decide what to do with the profits that this workplace generates. The mass of the people, the working people who come 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, they come, they give their brains, they give their muscles, they work, they produce the very profits the company earns, but they have no say in any substantive way about what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits. That's not democracy. Democracy would mean if all the workers together, one worker, one vote, decided collectively the what, the how, the where, and the what to do with the profits, which, after all, they all helped to produce. So for me, the fundamental change that socialism represents is finally, 
finally, historically saying, if you want an economic system that serves the people, then you have to put the people, all of them, in charge. They have to be able to have the final say over what goes on. They would then not allow to save a few bucks to poison the water of an entire city. They would not close a factory and destroy a city like Detroit in order to make a little extra profit by producing in Mexico or China the cars that we drive, etc., etc. It would be a completely different society. And I think once Americans get into their minds what a socialist alternative might look like, you're going to see not just a surprising response that the much more moderate proposals of, uh, of prof- uh, Professor Mr. Sanders, the amazing response he's gotten, but I think these other ideas will find in the American people an enormous echo, an enormous response, and it will be as surprising to the mass media as the rise of Sanders has been. I applaud that idea 100%. And I'd like to just, uh, you know, for our listeners to point out that that's a lot more of what Marx was talking about to start with. And, you know, he was talking about the workers owning the means of production. Right. And he wasn't talking about the government owning the means of production. And, you know, socialism was defined as from each according to his ability to each according to her work. And right. communism was supposed to be from each according to his ability to each according to her needs, which right. is even better. You know, and that was what, and, and Marx actually thought that it was a country like ours that was going to be in the vanguard of this because we had developed the society, the working class, exactly. and so on, that could actually do this. So we yeah, have that's, to, that's why I said at the beginning, uh, you know, if you interpret Marx the way you do, and I, I happen to agree with that, then you understand that the issue has always been to change the way people live, not just to change. Look, it, it doesn't make that big a difference. That's what we've learned in the 20th century. If you get rid of the private individuals that sit on the board of directors, but you replace them with another group, small group of people who happen to be state officials, You've changed who is making the decisions at the top, but you haven't brought the mass of people that's into right. a democratic relationship to their workplace. And that's what Marx had in mind. And that's, for me, what the fundamental insufficiency of what was done in, in Russia, China, and those places, and which they now have had to deal with the results of, I think it, it's exactly the point of an interpretation of socialism so that it means a real change in our lives at work. We're not a mass of drones being told what to do by a tiny minority. We're going to be part, we the working people, we're going to be part of running the enterprises, designing the enterprises. Our ingenuity, our creativity will be part and parcel of our work lives. We will not anymore be people whose attitude towards their job means that the minute they get out of their job, they go to a place, a bar, where it says happy hour, as if to underscore the nature of the hours preceding (laughs) their arrival. Oh, yeah. I always did that after work. Work should be a place where your full humanity 
flowers, where your skills and your knowledges can be expanded. It should be a beautiful, exciting place since you spend most of your life there, rather than a place dominated by a few people making as much profit as they can off of your labor. Our very language tells us that we can do better than that. Uh, Richard, I'd like to ask something, if I may. Are we talking about a co-op type of model that we already have precedent for in our system? And and, and another question I have is, how do we make the transition from what we have now into that kind of of socialist kind of structure you're talking about, where the workers control the production? Well, it's a great question you asked. So the, the answer to the first question is an emphatic yes, yes, yes. We have, human beings have, for centuries figured out what I'm talking about. Nothing I'm saying is new. People have formed cooperative workplaces uh, for as long as we can remember. American history, uh, I don't live very far and I don't work very far from a place called Shaker Village, the group called the Shakers, an early religious community here in the United States, a Protestant denomination. If you look at how the Shakers organized their communities, and they still exist, um, they were as worker co-ops. They, it's exactly what they did. Their interpretation of the Christian Bible was that it called for people to relate to one another at work and out of work in a cooperative, democratic way. Uh, so it is an old idea that's been around a long time. Various people have tried uh, to do it, and it has been something that human beings have found attractive for a long time. The best example today of how it was done is the story of what is the most successful worker co-op right now in the world. It's called the Mondragon Corporation. It's located in the country of Spain, and it was started in 1956 by a Roman Catholic priest, a man named Father Arismendi, who worked in this poor Basque area in the northern part of Spain, very, very poor, and who said one day in the mid-50s to his parishioners, look, if we wait for some capitalist to come here and create jobs for us, we will all die of old age before it happens. So if we want work, which we do, and we want the income from work, which we do, we have to solve the problem ourselves, We have to be our own employers. And they established, under the leadership of Father Arismendi, a cooperative of six workers. Well, fast forward to right now. The Mondragon Corporation is now a family of about 250 co-ops, which employs 100,000 workers in Spain. It's the seventh largest corporation in all of Spain. It is a worker co-op. All the worker members make the decisions collectively, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits. They have made, for example, unbelievable strides. They have a rule, just to give you one example, that nobody can earn more than eight and a half times what anybody else earns. The normal relationship of a CEO in an American corporation to the average worker is 300 to one, not eight and a half to one. They therefore have, in fact, dictated that they will employ people who are all relatively similar to one another. It's the dream of a uniform, quote-unquote, middle class, which the United States never 
achieved and which they have, etc. So we have plenty of examples, past and present, small enterprises, large enterprises. There's all the information that we could need. So successful has the one in Spain been that the Mondragon Corporation has its own university called the Mondragon University, where they offer curriculum, teaching, degrees in how to set up a workers' co-op, how to finance it, how to organize it. This is a known solution to the world's problems. It just has to be a political decision uh, to make the transition. And here's the last point to answer your question. These conversions of regular capitalist businesses to co-op businesses are in fact happening. They're happening right now around the world and in the United States. I'll give you an example of one I'm working with. It's an employer who worked very hard to build up a business, has 200 workers. The man and his wife built it from nothing. They are now retiring. Their children are not interested in keeping up the business. This family has a choice. They either close the enterprise, which would be to destroy everything they've built in their lives, or sell it to, out to some big corporation, and God knows, they fear, what such a corporation will do. They don't want to do either of those. What can they do? Solution. They can convert the business to a worker co-op. They can literally sell the enterprise to the workers as a group who then run it as a cooperative enterprise, and that's the solution they've found right here in the United States. And this is something that is happening more and more as people evaluate what kind of life they want, what kind of job they want. And I think if a political movement got going that saw this as the next step, if you like, in the evolution of our economic lives, then you would get the governmental support, not in the form of government taking over. We don't want to go in that direction for the reasons of what the 20th century taught us but instead have the government be a useful supporter of the emerging cooperative sector, just as the American government was absolutely essential to the emergence of the capitalist enterprises that now dominate the economy. It's fundamentally a question, what do the people want to have as the next step? And as the capitalism we have delivers not the goods but the bads to more and more of us, I think the interest in going in this other direction will be unstoppable. Now, I have to stop you because we are going to be, we only have a couple of minutes left, and we have to tell people what we're doing next time. But I'm so excited by what you're talking about. And I, um, you know, I, I think it's great that Bernie Sanders is bringing out things like income inequality, which we need to know about. But he's putting forward a model of socialism, which is not socialism per se, but is more like, you know, social democrats. Or, right. and, I, and I understand why he's doing it. I appreciate what he's doing. But there isn't anybody articulating this vision and who's actually trying to organize politically around it. And I believe, I agree with you. Uh, I think that we would then, people would begin to understand that democracy and socialism, or whatever you want to call it, call it cooperation, 
you know? Right. Get over competition. You know, competition is the, is the heart of the ego. You know, we look at it from the inner perspective. It's like the ego that says everything is about me and I'm better off if I get everything myself. And actually, we know from experience that we're all better off when everybody is happy. That That's you can't right. live in a world where you have... A, a mass of impoverished people and a couple of rich ones. Everybody is sick. The impoverished people are are downtrodden, and the and the rich people are crazy. <laughs> you know they can't live with themselves. And I, you know, so whatever you call that, you know, cooperation. And I, I've, I mean, I have a book on living with reality, which is really about shifting our consciousness. This is what needs to be put forward. And my frustration about the current political situation is. We're talking about a political revolution, but we're not really talking about the real economic revolution. And so I'm voting for you for President Richard. <laughs> and well, um, I can assure you, I agree with you, and I can assure you that um, there are a growing number of us that are trying to mobilize not just the arguments, but the people, the organizations, to begin to make uh, a demand for this kind of fundamental change, uh, part of our American uh, consciousness. You know, Obama promised hope and change. He didn't quite deliver it, and so we now have something further developed in uh, Bernie Sanders. If what Bernie Sanders advocates is not allowed to, to, to become reality in this country, and I know that there are many forces arranged against it, I am very confident that something further developed than Bernie will replace his effort, just as he replaced what Obama uh, suggested he might do. Because, again, it's the capitalist system's own inability yes. to function in, a, in an acceptable way that is recruiting, if you like, the support for precisely well, the I, things you're looking for. I love that. I love that. So you can count me in. All right. <laughs> All right. Any way I can help. James. All right. This okay. has been, really, don't, this has don't been a go wonderful away. conversation. And Take if you ever want to away. do it again, please don't hesitate to get I in touch. I will, but don't go away yet. James is going to and tell us what's coming up. You want to quickly give us your website also? Yes. The easiest way to follow us is to use the word democracyatwork.info. All one word, democracyatwork.info. It'll give you all of the information about what we're doing. Great. Okay, so okay, hang speaking, on, Richard. Okay, okay, now, speaking of competition, coming up next week, Super Bowl fever. It ain't healthy. But what's the cure? Learn about a brain-enhancing alternative to football. Plus, hear excerpts from author Steve Allman's interview, Tackle Football. For many Americans, Super Bowl Sunday is an all-consuming spectacle where money and mania coincide. Anxious fans overeat more than any other time except Thanksgiving, and last week tickets start at 3100 with fans vying for overpriced airfares as well. And look what the price that is paid by the football players. Recent studies showed 96% of NFL players and 79% of college and high school players tested positive for CTE, which is a serious brain disease. Former Super Bowl greats are also bursting this bubble, and they're saying, for example, Antoine Randall-L, he regrets ever playing football because he sees the damage that it causes to the brain and to the body. So are there healthy alternatives? Starting with our kids, you bet. On this show, you'll learn about Super Supportive Sundays, a family program emphasizing fitness, cooperation, service, and thought. Kids love it. And you'll hear excerpts from our October the 8th interview of Steve Allman, author of Against Football, a searing indictment of the game Steve loves. Tune in for a game changer. 
and offer a final word from Beth. Well, I love talking to you, Richard. You are going to come back. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it, too, because there's a lot to talk about. This is so important. Socialism is, um, as American as pizza. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much for being on our show. Me and I really meant it, and I would love to continue the conversation. Me too. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on VoiceAmerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.